Sarah. Hi, Allison, and uh, hello, everybody. Welcome back. We're gone for a week. How yeah. was your uh, your break? Oh, it was absolutely superb. I went to non-Brexit land. Non-Brexit land, yeah. right. You went out of France to I the know. UK. And I was wondering, will I get back this time? Will there be? And of course, no, it didn't happen. Right. So. Today was supposed to be non-Brexit day, and it hasn't happened yeah. yet, so we'll yep. see. But back in Paris here, the, it's, rainy. it's rainy, gray, the, cold. The lilies are changing. They're pretty leaves. Yeah. Um, and you, this week, got a little bit of color. You went to a harvest. If you go up onto the rooftops of Paris, which is where I want to take you this week, Sarah, you will find that something is growing and it's known as red gold. Well, I know that there's a lot of stuff growing on rooftops, yeah. like tomatoes and strawberries. It's like urban farming, right? Yeah. But gold? I know. Sounds weird. It's actually a plant. It's called Crocus sativus. Um, and it produces the world's most expensive spice. Ah, saffron. There's your clue. Yeah. Saffron, right? <laughs> exactly. It's a beautiful plant. It's got these delicate mauve flowers. And then inside, you've got three flame red stigmata, or these filaments, um, which then give this very, very strong, powerful spice. I completely fell under its spell. <laughs> so so this saffron is, is crocus, right? And it's a bulb. Usually, yeah. though, we're talking blooming in, in the spring for bulbs, right? That's what, one of the things that makes it so special, in fact, because unlike the rest of the family, crocus sativus flowers in October and for just three or four weeks. So we're right in the middle of the harvesting season, including in Iran, which is still the world's biggest producer. 150 tonnes of saffron are produced around the world. So Iran's the biggest producer, but there's also quite a lot produced in places like India, Morocco, Turkey, Greece, some in Italy, but in Spain. Paris doesn't seem like it would fit into that list. No, and yet, and yet, it's happening. Um, there used to be a lot grown in France in general back in the 18th, 19th century, but it died out. In recent years, there's been a bit of a revival, and now somewhere between 50 and 100 kilos per year are grown in France, mainly in Normandy and in the central southern region of La Lotte. So last year... Here in Paris, 300 grams were harvested on the rooftops. It's a world first. So how did this happen? That's the story, isn't it? <laughs> it is. And it's a lovely story because it's the tale of four sisters, Amela, Louise, Philippine and Bérangère, Dubessie. They are Parisian, but their family roots are in the countryside. And they were looking for ways to reconnect with nature, to bring some nature back into the city. So they've created an urban farming startup. It's called Bien Élevé. And they're now farming on five rooftops in and around Paris. It's just saffron, though. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. They're now just farming uh, saffron. It's a painstaking labor of love, but they're getting lots of enthusiastic people on board and during this very short but manic harvesting period they run early morning workshops where members of the public can harvest the flowers remove those precious uh, bits of red gold and generally get to know the spice again it's 9am and we're here on the windy rooftop of a culinary school near Montparnasse wearing aprons and carrying wicker baskets. 
Berenger Guillot, who's leading the workshop, shows us large, shallow wooden trays. A few months ago, students planted 20,000 bulbs here, she tells us. In this concrete jungle, there isn't a tree in sight, and hundreds of small mauve flowers are now looking up at us, waiting to be picked. Berenger bends down and takes a flower gently between her fingers. You pick the ones that are open, where you can see the red stigmata, she says. You break off the stem at the point where the purplish colour fades. By their own admission here, they've planted the bulbs, the saffron bulbs, a little bit too close one to the other, so I'm, I'm being very careful not to step on the other flowers at the same time. It's a bit tricky. One of the women here smells each flower before putting it into her basket. Turns out she's training to be a perfumer. This is the first time I smelled the fresh uh, saffron. We can recognize the smell it will have when it will be dried down, but obviously it's a little bit more green. So is it already used as an ingredient in perfume? Yeah, 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 it is. It's uh, actually quite oriental. It's spicy, it's quite dry. It can remind a little bit the leather also to my nose. Of course, it's more common to use saffron in cooking, in risottos, or to flavor creams and desserts. Hélène is French, but runs a pastry shop in Cambodia. I have a gastronomy uh, holiday in France. And did you realize that it could be grown in France? No, absolutely not. I just expected it was in the oriental countries. So you've got a basket here full of these yeah. beautiful violet-colored flowers. Yeah, exactly. A country maiden here yeah. in the Paris rooftop. And it's in October, so it's raining and you have a, a basket full of flowers. So it's like surprising. We need 150 flowers to get one gram of saffron. This year we planted around 60,000 bulbs, manually one by one, with people from Paris. Because it's like magic when you put people, the hands in the soil, every worry goes away, the stress goes away, and everyone starts talking, and it's a, it's a magic trick of uh, urban culture. That's Amela, the oldest of the Du Bessie sisters, who've pioneered the growing of saffron on rooftops. Last year, they produced 300 grams of saffron with their first two rooftops. Now they have five and expect to harvest around 700 grams this year. Amela was interested in bringing more nature into the city and seven years ago when she was looking for ways to move out of retail distribution she tried planting saffron in her parents' home in the countryside. There were a few leftover bulbs so she planted those on her balcony in Paris and found that they fared much better than their rural relatives. Saffron is a plant that is perfectly suited for urban culture. It is happier on our rooftops than it is in the soil of our parents in the centre of France, which is quite strange, but it is because it needs no water or very little water, so we do not irrigate it. It needs a very light soil, so most of the soil in France is too heavy for it, uh, and it needs people. And in the city, this is where we have people to come and look at it, to help us with it, to use it. And when you are on the countryside, it's more difficult to find those people. Because it all has to be hand-picked. Yes, it does. Hand-picked, and then you have to manually separate the stigmat from the flower. Then you have to dehydrate it. This is also very manual. 
This kind of work was done in France in the 18th and 19th century in particular. Tons of saffron were produced here, but as farming became more mechanised and no machine could harvest saffron, well, production here slumped. Then, with the two world wars that followed, the important thing was to have food at all, not necessarily spice. Um, separating the stigmat from the flower. Wearing thin rubber gloves, Amila picks up a flower, carefully separates out the petals, and gently prizes out the three flame red stigmata from the middle, taking care to keep them together. It's painstaking work, a bit like that of a goldsmith. You have to, to cut it just below the, the point where the three threads are united, so that it shows that it, this is real good quality saffron. It's a kind of guarantee that it's yes. authentic if you have the three threads still yes, joined. It is. Yes, it's not difficult, but it takes a lot of time. The picking, extracting the stigmata and then the drying all has to be done within a day. So the three to four weeks of harvesting are very intense. And because it is so labour-intensive, saffron has become the world's most expensive spice, selling at around 30 to 40 euros a gram. The smaller the quantity, the higher the price. And a 0.1 gram sachet of Paris-grown saffron works out at around 60 euros a gram. Higher labour costs in France mean they'll never be able to produce as cheaply as countries like Iran or India. But there are other advantages in growing saffron here in Paris, like privileging short supply chains, growing and selling local. One of our first rooftops is on the top of a supermarket and so we can sell the saffron just below the place where we grow it and that's one of the things we love. And saffron is also specifically well suited for these short circuits because it's so light and small in volumes. We can deliver it within Paris so we, our idea is to keep it local, that it is used by chefs or artisans around where we grow it and sold in shops nearby. While France produces less than 100 kilos a year, it does import nine tonnes. So there's clearly a market for French-produced saffron, although, as Amala Dubessi admits, there are limits to rooftop production. We will never have very large volume because we have small places and small surface. What I hope is that in the future we can bring the French saffron back to life. There are lots of very small growers around France Uh, what I would like is to be able to offer them a market by buying their product and putting it inside some of uh, the products we are going to design so that little by little we can federate all these small growers and uh, bring back the tradition of saffron in France. And Sarah, next year they're planning on opening a saffron farm in Lyon the city of Lyon, which has a strong gastronomic tradition. And the idea is, again, to supply the local market. So big ambitions, uh, but it's still a, a small startup for the moment. How big could this really be here in France? Well, it'll be limited because, as we heard in the report, it's so labour-intensive. Labour costs here in France will always be so much higher than countries like Iran or India. The startup couldn't even have started in the first place if it wasn't for the help of Paris City Hall, which has an urban farming program. It launched that in 2016. And it will basically loan you the premises, whether it's the gardens or the rooftops. Like they don't charge you rent. No, ah, exactly. So a huge operating cost. Yeah, now. exactly. Yeah. So that does at least make it possible to have a go. Of course, there are limits as to how much weight you can put on those rooftops, no more than 200 kilos per square metre. Uh, but whereas that would be a constraint for some heavier crops with something like saffron, uh, which needs actually very little soil, 
uh, it's it's not too much of a constraint. So interesting. Now we can buy this this very exotic spice locally. It encourages, I guess, local consumption. Yeah, exactly. And it reduces all those air miles. It, it will then, you know, help to reduce CO2 emissions and, uh, yeah, maybe actually encourage more uh, local employment. That said, I'm not quite ready to give up my Iranian saffron. I'm very lucky. I've got a, a fam- friends over in Tehran and every year they send me a little bit. The Iranians call it the spice of joy. We're going to go back in history today to the French Revolution, um, the start of France's uneasy relationship, let's say, with the Catholic Church that is still an issue today. So we're going back 230 years, November 2nd, 1789, the newly created Constituent Assembly, the Assembly of the People, the People's yeah. Parliament, passed a decree confiscating church property. Um, the government was broke at the time. That was one of the things that actually set off the revolution in the first place. And after the start of the revolution, you know, the storming of the Bastille in July 1789, people were just not paying taxes. Um, many thought that the revolution meant, yeah, we don't have to pay taxes yeah, anymore. Yeah, I don't blame them. I think I would have thought the same thing. <laughs> so no. what do you do to raise money? The church, it was called the first estate, had a lot of property. It was, in fact, the largest landowner in the country at the time. Yeah, and its property was valued at something like 10 times the amount of the country's budget. So a lot of money there. Why not sell it off to secure the state debts? Um, lawmaker Charles-Maurice de Talleyrand, he's a bishop himself, he argued that most of that property didn't even belong to the church anyway. Mm. We're talking mostly farmland and buildings that had been donated over the centuries. Donations that Talleyrand said that hadn't been made to the church, but actually to France itself and to the whole nation. After some debate, the assembly agreed and, and they passed the decree church property would be nationalized. In exchange, the state would support the clergy, they'd pay worship expenses, they'd pay priest salaries and that kind of thing, and take over all the stuff that the church had been doing, like relief for the poor and education. So I I imagine that not everyone was really thrilled about this plan. Well, actually, interestingly, people were really kind of into it. Many Catholics, Catholics. yeah, many Catholics thought it was a pretty good deal. Remember, the revolution didn't really start completely as an anti-Catholic thing. It was definitely anti-church power. The church had an enormous amount of power, the first estate. And and people thought, well, maybe this is a good idea. We can raise money, reduce the, the power of the church. It's a pretty good deal. There's a problem, though. What do you do with all that land? Mm. There was so much of it. If it was all sold at once, it would depreciate in value and kind of defeat the whole purpose. So the government created bonds based on the value of the property. They issued certificates with 5% interest rates. Um, these are pieces of paper. They're called assignats. Okay. And in April 1790, the next year, they were turned into legal tender, so, actually money. So people were actually going to the market and buying fruit and veg with assignats. Yeah, it turns out it wasn't initially you know, intended that way. That's what started happening. And as that happened, apparently the value decreased. And soon France had an even larger debt than it had back in 1789 when it all started. Oh, dear. So confiscating the land clearly didn't really work for the budget. What effect did it have on the church? Well, the church definitely suffered during the revolution and then the reign of terror afterwards. Thousands of priests ended up being forced to abdicate. Many left France. Others were executed because it really turned into this anti clerical uh, anti-church movement, by 1794, very few of France's 40,000 churches even remained open. 
The revolution ends 1799. Napoleon takes power a few years later in 1804. In the meantime, he had made an agreement with the Pope at the time. It was called the Concordat. That was in 1801, and it allowed the French clergy to return from exile, take up their positions again. The church didn't get its land back,、mm-hmm. um, and Napoleon retained control over appointing bishops and, and pretty much all of church finances. So that was how France managed the church for a century. Yeah, pretty much a century until 1905. This is the famous laicite. Law that was put in place by the government of the Third Republic, really separating church and state. That law, of course, still exists today and governs a lot of how we see、uh, religious and religious life in France. And how much property, Sarah, does the Catholic Church in France own today? Not completely clear. It's not a huge part of their revenue.、Um, basically, any church that was built after 1905 is their property. They can also have property donated to them,、um, but it's nowhere near the power and the amount they had before. The revolution,、um, although some reports are pointing that maybe the Vatican itself has some properties here in、mm. Paris, not clear. But but really, we're not talking about a huge amount because that's basically what these laws did: is strip them of their power. So I guess we're a bit Paris focused in the show today because we're now heading to Paris City Hall to talk resilience. Allison, have you ever heard of the concept of a chief resilience officer? I haven't, but it sounds fun. <laughs> well, it was created by the Hundred Resilient City Network that was launched by the Rockefeller Foundation in 2013. The American Foundation, and the idea was to fund a position in each of these cities that would deal with resilience. Yeah, it, on the other hand, it does sound a bit like a fancy management term. It, it does, yeah, but it does come out of thinking of what to do in the face of climate change,、mm. which is a serious thing, and how do you address it on a systemic Level, the idea of this resilience idea is to think about how a city or a territory can continue to function in the face of crisis. So let's say heat waves or floods, but even terrorist attacks. I mean, we're talking any kind of shocks, whether natural or man-made. The man who got the job here in Paris was Sebastien Mer. Today, his official title is Chief Officer for Ecological Transition and Resilience. Wow, official.、Um, his salary is now paid by the city.、Um, but I was interested to talk to him about what it's like to come into a city like Paris, which has a very entrenched way of working. I mean, it's a huge city, a huge bureaucracy, and he comes in with this mandate from an American foundation to shake things up.、Um, although first, we talked about the idea of resilience itself, n- notably. About climate change, we definitely need to work on adaptation because we started to face, and we're going to face more and more, the consequences of climate change. Mitigate is not enough. Because it's too late. It's not just reducing、exactly. greenhouse gas emissions. It's also saying, okay, it's here. What do we do about it? That seems like a, a huge challenge. And that's one of the most important in Paris because Paris is a mineral city. It's made of concrete, asphalt. That won't work with heat waves. By 2050, we might face temperatures during heat waves that will last a month or more. 55 Celsius degrees under shade. So we just had this past summer 45, 46 degrees for just a couple of days. And it was horrible for the whole population. But what with 10 Celsius degrees more? Our buildings, our public spaces are not ready at all. 
to stand this. Um, so that's one huge part of the municipality action at the moment. Do, do, would you say that's maybe your main focus right now, is this idea yeah. of resilience in the face of climate change? The, the idea of resilience is to consider that there is not only one issue. There is not only climate in life. That's important. But if with a magic wand we could fix our carbon emissions problem, it wouldn't be enough if we keep on destroying biodiversity, for instance. It's not enough uh, to try to address climate issues. We need to do it as well as other ones. So, for example, inequalities. There is this feeling if you're going to be a very resilient city, but it's only for wealthy people, that becomes an issue. Exactly. And adapting the city regarding heat waves targets the most vulnerable people who live in the poorest buildings uh, and homes are not able to afford for aircon or whatever. So what, what can a city like Paris do? I know one of the projects that's been talked about in the press has been um, renovating school courtyards to make them more shaded and less hot. That's the first step, and that's huge already because we're talking about more than 700 schools representing 70 hectares of land that we're going to turn into cool islands that are going to both benefit to the children during the day and to the elderly and the vulnerable people after school time. But that's not enough. And what we've been doing at the moment is replicating this oasis concept to the streets because the idea is to change material, to create shade, let the wind bath. So it's mainly nature-based solutions, more than tech ones. And I'm doing that on purpose because tech brings vulnerability most of the time. What, what do you mean by that? Actually, you, you, see, you seem like this is almost like this is a big challenge that you're trying to convince people that we got to go to nature and not tech. For sure, here as everywhere in the world. For instance, let's talk about a green wall. Green wall is a wall of, with plants on it. Yeah, the green walls with plants. And so there are the tech ones with hydropony, sensors, pumps, uh, softwares that are always getting trouble and need to be fixed and repaired and so on. And you have for exactly the same result, visually and thermically, uh, the low-tech green wall at the bottom of your building, you take out 20 centimeters of concrete and you plant climbing trees, and that's it. And you wait. And after two years, you have the same result without spending any euros. We forgot that there are just nature. If, if we leave nature alone, actually, it's really efficient for many things. From what I understand, you don't have your own budget. You're working no. with everybody else in the city's budget, trying to, to point it towards ways that would make the city more resilient. And it's so interesting that you need to have somebody coming in, a new person, to say, let's go back to how we used to do it, to spend less money. Yes. How much has that been welcomed? Uh, depends from where. <laughs> the finance people really appreciate this approach. You don't need extra money to be resilient. We used to say that to have a sustainable building, you need 20% budget more. To install solar panels, yeah, to do insulation, panels, all that kind of thing. Other materials or whatever, and it's going to be more expensive. The resilience approach is different. Is give me the budget you have, and I'll do my best with this budget. Because it relates to another way to design policies and projects. Trying to enlarge what we call the multiple benefits of a project. Or the saved costs. 
because as you're going to increase health or whatever, you're not going to have health expenses, and so you can spend a little bit more at the beginning and so on. And for sure, this approach is different than the administrative culture, and that's complicated. The culture running into, is it uniquely French or Parisian, do you think? Or is it just big, giant cities that you know, have trouble changing the way they've always done things? At first, I thought that we really had a specificity in France uh, regarding our conservative administration way of working on a daily basis. That's the stereotype. Uh, that's a stereotype, because since uh, I had the chance to um, see how it was in other cities, in other continents, my discovery of the Americans, for instance, this international program with 100 resident cities and a big American foundation, bureaucracy and reporting was much worse than in my daily life here in Paris. So I think that there are kind of stereotypes. I think the difference is that here, policies are really politicized much more than in the US or in the Saxon world. Here, I could conduct my mission because the mayor herself supports it a lot. In French public organization, if the mayor or the head of the executive supports a project, it will be done whatever happens. So, so you actually ended, you fell also upon political establishment in the last few years that is very open to this. As a result, it's made it a lot easier for you. Sure. Actually, I can even say that without this political support, it wouldn't be possible. So that means, though, that you are vulnerable to political change. You know, facing an election next year, the winds might change. Actually, I don't think so. The issues we're talking about are the main issues anyway. They cross political lines. Yes. Whoever is going to be the mayor, a mayor who wouldn't work on these issues wouldn't deserve to be elected. We're in Paris. It's the biggest city in France. I mean, are there other cities that are interested in this? Could this be spread elsewhere to, say, Bordeaux or Montpellier, Lyon? It started already. We've been over-requested by other cities from the whole country who want to build resilient strategies. The idea is that we know that Paris as the biggest city, the richest city in the country, has the chance to conduct experimentation, but all the innovations at work, we want to share them because we know that we are under emergency. And it takes so long time to build a project and to change the mentalities and the administrative cultures and so on, that if the work we've been doing here can be useful for other territories, we'll do that with pleasure. Well, that's it for the show today. If you enjoyed it, why not subscribe to Spotlight on France wherever you get your podcasts? And why not write to us with suggestions for subjects that you may be interested in? You can send us a mail at spotlight.france at rfi.fr. We'd love to hear from you. We'll be back next week with more stories beyond the baguette on Spotlight on France. Bye for now. Bye.